Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I'm sure you're all watching the news about Hurricane Ian as it has made landfall in Florida. Please go to our Twitter feed, at Project Lincoln, where you can find all the information you need about how you can help make sure that Floridians who are in the path of this thing get the help and the assistance they need. The greatness of America is that we pull together when we need to, regardless of what state we live in, regardless of what party we belong to. This is the time to show each other what America means. Let's get after it. Let's help those folks. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined once again by legendary Democratic strategist, senior advisor to The Lincoln Project, and host of That Trippy Show, found wherever fine podcasts can be downloaded, Joe Trippy. Joe, always good to have you back. It's always good to be here. Thanks for having me, Reed. So, Joe, as we're recording this, we're about 40 days out from Election Day. This is the Wednesday, September 28th. You and I thought we'd be discussing the January 6th hearing that was supposed to be run today. Instead, Hurricane Ian is, as we speak, making landfall in western Florida. And I just want to take a moment to say, and I know, Joe, you've got a lot of connections down there, that we're thinking of everybody. If you have any desire to help folks down there, you can go to at Project Lincoln on Twitter. We've listed a whole bunch of ways that you can help the folks down there. I know that, Joe, where I live in Utah, you know, a lot of the guys who are responsible for repairing power lines, their trucks were on the road earlier this week. And so it is scary to see how powerful this thing is. But as this storm is making landfall, it's always incredible to me to see the number of resources that people bring to bear to be prepared for when the recovery begins. Because, you know, right now is awful and there will be days and weeks of immediate response. But the recovery is really the hard part because that takes weeks, months and even years. This one looks like it's all hands on deck to help out any way you can. And if you can, check those resources on the Lincoln Project page and do what you can. As it, you know, within a week or so, the press coverage will go away, but those people are going to need help down there for, it'll be months, if not years, to recover for a lot of these folks. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I guess, have a dubious distinction. I got to Louisiana, to Baton Rouge, 24 hours after Katrina made landfall in 2005. I worked at FEMA in 2003, right as it became the part of the Department of Homeland Security. That was a year of not so many hurricanes, but a lot of tornadoes, and really understanding the response and recovery efforts, all of the different agencies, both state, local, federal, that have to come into being. I mean, Joe, I could tell you that when I got to Baton Rouge in 2005, you know, to the emergency operations center there, it looked like something out of apocalypse now. People were running willy-nilly. There were helicopters taking off and landing. The press was just running around free. At the time, a woman named Kathleen Blanco was governor of Louisiana. I think she's since passed away. Shell-shocked 
you know, Ray Nagan, the mayor of New Orleans, subsequently went to prison. Uh, I don't think it was for hurricane related things, but certainly had been late on the draw to tell people to evacuate. And, you know, as the day went on flying over the city, it was literally something out of a movie. There was water everywhere. You could see where the levees were still, you know, cracked and the water was rushing through boats up on the land. And then there was the smell because all the sewer lines had gone. All of the refineries were flooded. We landed in Plaquemines Parish, and it was like something you'd see in a war zone, right? They had commandeered a refinery building from a major oil company. The oil company kept calling us and being like, we want our building back. And I'm like, well, the locals aren't quite done with it, so I think you're going to have to wait a few days. You know, they had strung up blue tarps and spray-painted red crosses on the back of a, like a 1978 Nissan pickup truck to serve as an ambulance. I mean, it was just, you couldn't believe something like that was happening you know, on American soil in one of, you know, America's sort of greatest and most renowned cities. You know, we've learned a lot since then. And pre-staging has gotten a lot better for these things. But in a lot of ways, we still haven't really addressed the elephant in the room of, you know, climate change is real, folks. And there's things we could have done all those years to have made some headway against what's happening. But maybe people are starting to get the message now. Well, one can only hope. And I'll, let me just finish on the hurricane with one story. So in Louisiana, they rolled out these FEMA trailers. And these were like end of days trailers, Joe. These were the kinds of things that were only supposed to appear like after a nuclear war, right? Command centers, communication centers. And I'm sitting there at the big conference table. There's computers. It looks like something out of a movie. And my phone rings and I got this little flip phone, right? It's 2005. And I say, hello, this is Reed. And, and there's this woman. And she says, is this Reed Galen? I said, it is. She said, my name's so-and-so. I can't recall her name now. And she said, I'm in Metairie. There is two feet of water in my house and the water's rising. And my sons and I don't want to be here anymore. And I said, okay. And she said, so please send somebody. Again, Joe, I have no idea how this woman got my phone number. And I go over, there were two colonels in the National Guard who are liaisons to the state patrol. And I say, there's this lady, here's her address, can you guys go get them? And so they sent state troopers out there. A couple hours later, one of the colonels comes over, just want to let you know, Mrs. So-and-so and her two sons, they're safe, we got them someplace. And I'll tell you, Joe, if I never do anything else in my life. That's great. Like just knowing that being randomly in the right place at the right time could make sure that those three people got out and got safe. You know, God bless wherever they are now. That's a great thing, Reed. It really is. So- to all of the people who have evacuated, let's just hope that you are safe, your families are safe, your homes are safe, your pets are safe. And for all of those who will start the hard work of response and recovery in the next hours and days, we cannot say thank you enough. I don't think the American people can say thank you enough. And this is what makes our country as great as it is, is that when there is a crisis, people come together and they get stuff done. And let's turn now Joe, to another crisis of American democracy, and that is a rising tide of violent rhetoric and extremism in, I'm going to call it the Republican Party. It's not the conservative movement, I don't think. I don't know what that means anymore. And so I recorded an interview with a guy named Bart Gelman, who's an incredible writer for The Atlantic. In January, he wrote an article for the magazine that said, January 6th was just practice. And in his article, which, Rob, maybe we can put the link to that article in the episode in the show notes, he had a lot of information from a University of Chicago professor named Robert Pape. 
who he and his classes had done a lot of exploration into extremism and who was being driven to extremism, who was being radicalized amongst Trump supporters. And what was fascinating at that time, what they found was that it was not 18 to 22 year old white guys with no economic prospects. It was people like me in their 30s and 40s, successful. They were professionals. They had means. They were able to get themselves to Washington, D.C. They were able to pay for all this gear. And the one thing that they all seemed to share was that they predominantly lived in areas where not Trump had won, but Biden had won. And there'd been an influx of non-white citizens or residents, I should say, into those areas, whether it was a county, a city, a town, whatever it was. So just before we started recording here, you had posted this article from CBS about that Professor Pape had done an update to their research for 2022, and it appears that it's gotten worse. What Professor Pape found was that there was a predominance of these radicalized people, about 13 million of them, who thought that force was necessary to put Trump back in office, and that there was also about a 50% correlation to some belief in QAnon. And that's a big number and scares the hell out of me. They also found that 15 million Americans believe that force is justified to prevent Trump from being prosecuted. They say it's about 5% of the American public. And the, the reality is the 5% thing sounds like a small problem until you realize the 13 million or 15 million number, that many Americans out there are prepared to resort to violence. And we saw it in January 6th, so we know it's out there, but it's 13, 15 million people, and it's growing from the study. It got worse between January 6th and now, according to what was reported in CBS News. Maybe we put that in the show notes, too, so people can look at it. You know, I think there was initially a thought that January 6th was the end of something. But what it really has turned out, Joe, to be is the beginning of something. It was not the closing chapter of Trump's presidency, although maybe technically it was, but it was the opening salvo really in the fight, the existential fight, the denouement, to be nerdy about it, of American democracy that's going to take place here 40 days from now and then 24 months after that. And frankly, every day in between. Yeah, I just want to do a quote from Dr. Robert Pape. He said, we have not just a political threat to our democracy, something we've been Lincoln Project and the union and others have been worried about and fighting. We have not just a political threat to our democracy. We have a violent threat to our democracy. I mean, it goes beyond the politics of winning these elections. This threat is growing and it's violent in nature and it's being fueled by the Roger Stones and the Steve Bannons and the Donald Trumps. And Tucker Carlson. And as we're recording this, the leaders of the Oath Keepers, who were some of the masterminds of January 6th, have just gone on trial, I think five of them, for seditious conspiracy. Earlier this week, the man that assaulted Officer Fanon, who we'll have on the show here in a few weeks, received, I think, almost eight years in prison. There was a story, I think, that just made the news that uh, there was a young woman telling a story about her father had become a QAnon adherent, killed her mother, killed her sister, I think shot her, I might get the details wrong, but, you know, again, violence being brought from the computer screen or the phone screen, Joe, into people's real lives. There was another QAnon guy in a book that I just finished, you know, in Seattle was convinced that, you know, because his brother didn't agree with him, he was a lizard in human skin and killed him with a sword. 
So like this is having real world impacts on individual families, but the Proud Boys are out there and they've sort of gone underground, not underground, but certainly quiet, I think, for a little while is they're all trying to maybe stay out of federal prison themselves. And now you've got Steve Bannon saying he's got 11,000 people who are going to go to polling places in November to make sure that the election is secure and to challenge every vote. And that's one of those things, Joe, that is the rubber meets the road of American politics is we now have voters voting or getting close to voting that in some of these states, Texas, you can get in more trouble for being a poll worker trying to do their job than an election observer who tries to disrupt a polling place. You know, the one thing, too, though, is you were talking about Proud Boys and others laying low. You also, I think Officer Fanon said that, you know, in the trial, there was this effort to try to ask for forgiveness and all this stuff. And as the family was leaving and as the supporters of the attacker were leaving, they're calling him a piece of shit. They didn't learn anything from going through the trial. This violence and this attitude is for real. And it's fed by like crazy conspiracy theories that they feed on and are being fed by the Tucker Carlson's. And they all know what they're doing, too. That's the crazy part of this. These guys, they know what they're fueling. And, I, you know, I think like Bannon, he just wants to blow everything up and doesn't realize that burn down the forest and green shoots will come up. Well, yeah, everything dies in the forest. You know? <laughs> right. you know, it's not like the green shoots don't come up the next day. Like, right. It is not a process that lacks violence and destruction. Yeah. You know, I'm reading Peter Baker and Susan Glasser's book, The Divider on Trump's four years in office, which is very well done. I'm about a third of the way through it, but also sort of gut wrenching and having to remember Joe, that it was literally almost every day of four years, there was something else insane going on. But just to back to Bannon in particular, they relate a story where Jim Mattis, then Secretary of Defense, Rex Tillerson, then Secretary of State, and it might have been Dunford, who was at the time chairman of the Joint Chiefs, invited Trump over to the tank, which is the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That's their very secure meeting room, a place I've actually been lucky enough to be when I worked for President Bush. And but before they went, Bannon's like, here's what they're going to try and do. They're going to try and tell you like the international order is a good thing. It's not. They're going to try and tell you that NATO is a good thing. It's not. They're going to try and tell you we need allies. We don't. Don't let them get away with it. And so Trump goes in there, spurred by Bannon, calls everybody losers and totally says like, International orders don't matter. Norms don't matter. You don't need friends. Let's fight everybody. And somebody said in the wake of that, you know, oh, this was the worst meeting. And there was like, no, this was just the first worst meeting. Every meeting after that was worse. You know, without alliances, I mean, look at Ukraine, you know, what Biden has put together and how the coalition, the NATO alliance is held. It's just hard to imagine where the world would be if Bannon and Trump had succeeded and we're still there right now. I mean, you know, Ukraine wouldn't be a place on the map right now. Well, and now, you know, you saw this news earlier in the week, Joe, that the Nord Stream pipeline was sabotaged. Let's make a fair assumption that the Russians did it. But you have Tucker Carlson going on saying, now, I don't know that the CIA was responsible for it, Joe, for sabotaging this European gas pipeline between Russia and, and Europe. But who's to say they didn't? Yeah, he's just asking questions. <laughs> just who's asking say, questions. Yeah, who's to say they didn't? And then he proceeds to, like, you know, basically, now because we did this, 
all kinds of bad things are going to happen. Let me tell you what they're going to be. You know, the way he does the questions thing is just fascinating to watch, although it works, unfortunately, you know? Yeah, no, and Jen Mercia, who's a professor of linguistics then at Texas A&M University, who we've had on, yeah, said that. She calls it the, I'm not saying, but I'm saying. Right, yeah, exactly. And then he says, I never said that. What What are you talking about? Yeah. I don't know. And then you got Trump who goes on Truth Social to follow it up, which shows you, again, you know, throughout the Glasser and Baker book, just reminds us how addicted Trump is to television, that he goes on Truth Social, says all this gobbledygook, and then says, you know, we need to make friends with Russia. I'm willing to lead the effort. Like, oh, okay, sure. That would be terrific. As if anybody in the world thinks that's a good idea. But this kind of stuff, you know, I got asked a question earlier today, Joe, just sort of shooting off of the violence, but in, you know, keeping on the rhetoric about we saw that, you know, a far right party is about to take power in Italy. You know, right wing coalition is taking power in Sweden and, you know, asked were all these things connected. I said, well, if you look at the rhetoric, and you look at the strategy and you look at the tactics, and we know for a fact that Bannon ran around Europe, right, trying to start these sort of young fascist schools. We know that the American conservative movement, in particular, Matt Schlapp and CPAC, are attached to the hip to Viktor Orban and vice versa. Um, yeah, it is all connected. I guess maybe the good news, you know, theoretically, is that the Italians can't keep a government for more than like nine months. Yeah, I've been through a few of those. <laughs> I worked for uh, Romano Prodi when we beat Berlusconi. You're right. They go through governments like every nine months. In fact, I think they ran against each other several times. I was with them the time we, we won. But yeah, that's the one thing there. But the fact is, Bannon was out there helping recruit these candidates. I mean, he was out there really helping to build this and energize the movement writ large across Europe. And these parties were people that he was helping and calling out on his show for months before the elections. And it's a very well-coordinated and I think well-funded, whether it's conspiracy, whatever you want to call it, but it's a movement that is well-organized, disciplined, and funded and has media outlets aiding and abetting it. Let me ask you a question, Joe, and this is unfair because you've spent your life in democratic politics, but why is it that wealthy conservatives, at least in this moment in time, seem so willing to support causes, organizations, candidates, people that are so antithetical to American democracy. It can't just be lower taxes. I mean, can it? Maybe that's it. Or is it that, you know, oh, yeah, they're bad, but the Democrats are truly evil because they're going to come steal our money. Like, I just I can't wrap my head around it. Look, I can't either. But I think it's they believe that they're going to do better financially under the Republicans, whether it's taxes, whether it's business deals, whatever. And I think the mistake is that in an authoritarian party, it's basically proximity to dear leader that gets you those things. And so I think they're making the wrong bet and a huge mistake. And I don't understand why they're doing it. Look, you know, I think there are a lot of things that need to be changed, you know, regulations, et cetera. And so I keep your business and you think that You'd love to get rid of the EPA if you're in a lot of these businesses. You know, and by the way, Trump was dismantling a lot of those kinds of things. Now, it doesn't matter to them that a lot of people are going to get sick and stuff is going to happen because of drinking water or pollution that's in the ground. They just want to make that money. And of course, there is something to loosening some of the regulations. I mean, I understand those arguments, but 
I think they don't understand what they're about to unleash. I think they should have seen it with the way Trump and these crazies dismantled department after department, alliance after alliance. I mean, I keep saying when you look at climate change, there's no country in the world, not one single country can solve that problem. How you solve it without some kind of alliance agreements, you know, writ large, will go it alone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at what's happening in Florida right now. I mean, if we all keep going alone and don't try to build international agreements about how we together address this stuff, yeah, then it's not going to happen. And, you know, the one thing I think is when people say, well, why us? Look, we're the only country in the world that can do it. If we aren't going to lead, there's no upside to losing the fight against climate change, right? right. There's no upside <laughs> to that. Okay, failure's really not an option, folks. Right. There's really no downside to winning it either, right? Right, there's, no, there's a big <laughs> upside to winning it. And then you have to ask yourself, well, is there one country on earth that could lead that effort with their technology? Yes, and that's what makes us great. That's the argument I think that we need to start making. I mean, Democrats and as pro-democracy people, it's the engine of our democracy, our democratic republic is the only thing out there that could try to bring the world together to address the problems we can't face alone. And the mistake is that Trump and Bannon and these guys think, no, we can go it alone. That's crazy. This is what I don't understand. You know, I, I haven't been a Republican for a while now, but I mean, I feel like that the Republicans I did work for, Joe, I worked for John McCain, Arnold Schwarzenegger and George W. Bush. And Bush was probably the most conservative of the three traditionally and more conservative than I was. Arnold and I were probably pretty aligned and McCain pretty close. But they seem genuinely interested in governance, right, of actually making things happen. And, you know, you talk about that going alone thing is, you know, you take Jackson, Mississippi. Well, how do you think that that's going to get fixed? If I'm in my house in Jackson, Mississippi, like I can't go and fix my water supply by myself. That's why we have government, because we say, OK, we're going to ascribe authority, i.e. power to you in exchange for the fact, to your point, Joe, that there are things that we can only do together that we can't do independently. It's the reason why most individuals don't build roads or airports or power stations, right? Because those are the kinds of things that a society needs to do. But maybe my broader point is that so much of the Republican conservative rhetoric, even Tate Reeves, right, the governor of Mississippi, who I think should be run out of town on a rail, he was in Hattiesburg or something, said it's a good day not to be in Jackson. Like, what an asshole, right? Like, you're the governor of the fucking state. These are your constituents. You're responsible for them. And he has no compunction whatsoever. What's his answer, Joe? Let's privatize Jackson's water system. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Let's privatize the Colorado River, okay? I mean, this is what I mean. Like, water is going to be a major problem everywhere. It's a different problem out in West, but it's a problem. It's going to be a problem everywhere. And privatizing it is crazy. And again, none of that's going to get fixed by, you know, blue or red, it's going to be fixed by us having a common purpose and a common agreement about what we're trying to do to give all of us a better life. And that means with rights come responsibility. But this is the whole idea, though, Joe, is that they want rights without responsibility. They want to cut taxes, right? The corporate tax cut of what, 2018 cost the American Treasury $2 trillion. 
with the idea pushed by Republicans of like, oh, trickle down economics, which is horseshit, right? In 1980, George H.W. Bush, when he's running against Ronald Reagan, calls it voodoo economics. He knew it was horseshit. And I even saw somebody the other day who was one of the guys who created it said it didn't say it would flood. It said it would trickle. Oh, OK. So so what you're saying is you're actually full of shit. Yeah, it was all bullshit from the beginning. It's the erosion of common purpose, national purpose, and then this like rights without responsibility that has become what the Republican Party's become. It's become actually trying to divide, not try to find common purpose. And then on top of it, rights with no responsibility. That's how you get to the governor of Mississippi saying, hey, it's a great day to not be in Jackson, right? It's like, he's the governor of the state. It's his responsibility, but nah. Let me ask you this. I saw this headline, Joe, and let me just say that I am a confirmed capitalist, but that does not mean that I believe in unfettered capitalism because I don't think even Adam Smith believed in that. Not even Hamilton believed in it. Not even Hamilton believed in that. 50% of America's wealth is held by 2% of Americans. I remember driving around with Rick last year. We were in Colorado for a couple of events, and I said, you know, Rick, we could help win this fight for American democracy. And all of it could fall apart because of just the yawning and continuing growth of the economic divide in this country, where soon, you know, it won't just be, you know, we can't just talk about oligarchy, we'll be living with it. And I am, again, generally speaking, fiscal conservative. I don't know anybody who would prefer higher taxes. So let me just be clear about that. But how do we address that? Because that's also part of it, which is whether or not it's Google, Facebook, any big tech company who said, you know, they're going to move their stuff. We don't know anything to the United States, although we wouldn't be able to exist without it. The technology we use grew up in the basement of the Pentagon. The freedom to do this stuff exists because of this. In 1996, the Telecom Act basically gave them unfettered room to run, which they still take advantage of today. So like this idea that there are so few big things, whether or not that's corporate America, whether or not that's wealth holders, how do you achieve political freedom if you don't have economic freedom? That's exactly right. It's the right question. And the reality is, you know, Hamilton believed that, yeah, capitalism was great, but it could be a wild animal that would run over everything, which is why he wanted to have a strong federal government to protect commerce, you know, have a Navy out there and all that stuff but also to rein in capitalism when it ran wild. And so to take that down into a quick thing, it was that capitalism had to be subservient to democracy and not the other way around. Democracy cannot be subservient to capitalism. And I think that's where everything's gone off the rails because once you had Citizens United, you know, corporations are people too. I mean, things were going on way before that. But I'm saying it's grown and grown and grown until now. I think people feel like, hey, it's the big corporations that can, you know, buy whoever they want in Congress and we don't have a say, which I think also fuels up the angst that people are feeling out there that, again, the Tuckers and, you know, that feeling of, you know, helplessness that you can't do anything about it. And so I think that's the right question. But how do we get people to realize that these elections they do have the power. They can toss some of these people out. That's why I joined the Lincoln Project. 
We've got to come together as Democrats, Republicans, former Republicans, independents, and take on not just this authoritarian movement that's out to destroy democracy, but also, I think, take on this notion that, no, we've got to make corporate America subservient to our democracy, not the other way around. And I think that's what's going on out there. People are working three jobs just to get by and working without any feeling that there's a stake in feeling like they could do something about this, which gets back to climate change and everything. I mean, all the big problems. I think it's exacerbating this feeling that what can I do? It doesn't matter. Yeah, right. So, I mean, you know, one thing that was always dogma for Republicans, and I think it was true for a long time, was that the Republican Party was the party of the small business owner, the family, right? They got up every day, they went to their shop, they went to their store, they went to their diner, whatever it was. They were conservative by nature. They were conservative financially because they didn't have a lot of extra money, but they had enough money to buy a house, buy a couple of cars. They probably hadn't gone to college, but their kids could. That sort of idea of if you do what's asked of you and you play by the rules, you'll climb the ladder, your kids will climb the ladder higher than you. I was at this thing the other night with a guy who spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley. He's a physical product guy, not like a computer thing, but Bluetooth kind of stuff. And I was asking him, because I always, whenever I find somebody who has insight and knowledge in something that I'm interested in, but I have no understanding of, I love to get a hold of these guys. And he's basically like, look, if you have a great idea in Silicon Valley, you got two choices. Amazon comes, Google comes, Facebook comes. They say, buy or crush. Sell or you're done. We'll just copy it. We'll just take it. And what's ironic, I think also, Joe, on this is it crushes the very sort of innovative spirit that made Silicon Valley what it was and what it is, but also what the country is writ large or what we've always thought of ourselves as, right? The people who could have a good idea, go out and make something of it, make a living off it. If you could sell it to somebody bigger, terrific. But now it's basically like, how do they say it in Mexico? You know, uh, lead or silver. You're going to take one or the other. And frankly, many of these things were things that the Republican Party used to hang its hat on. That's what's so crazy about it. As a country, we need to find that common ground that gets us back to that spirit that we can do this. And not only that, we can lead the world in getting it done in time to give our kids a better life, which is what this country was always about. And it's not just calling them out on their insurrection, on their violence. It's also starting to assert that there's a common purpose and a common good that's worth sacrificing some of your individual selfishness and compromising so that we all can live together and actually solve these problems and get things done. That's where I think Biden as president has been trying desperately to pull together and get there. But I think it's going to take two or three defeats of the MAGA crowd to get any more than a handful of Republicans that are willing to respond to that kind of message and come together. No, and you just think about in the early 1900s, who was the trust buster? Teddy Roosevelt. In the early 50s, who was the person who made massive expenditures in American infrastructure? Dwight Eisenhower, because he'd been across the American West with John Pershing in the early 1900s, he's like, this is a 19th century country. He went to Germany, saw the Audubon. He said, okay, we're going to connect the country together. 
And so like they understood the power of the government to ensure economic, I don't want to say fairness, but some closer level of competition, which again was always a Republican thing, but also the understanding that to begin our conversation, like in Eisenhower, there are some things only the government can do and we're going to go do them because it's for the greater good. And, you know, the sort of old trope of rising tide lifts all boats, not as true as it was, unfortunately. But let me move on because I didn't expect that we'd talk about economic issues, but here we are. This is the Beauty of the Lincoln Project podcast. We never know where it's going to take us. So I was talking to Trigvi Olson, one of our senior advisors and one of our top political strategists yesterday. And I've been asked this question a lot. So I asked him, I said, what do you think is going to happen in November? And he said, I don't know. And so we had this conversation and Joe, we just started adding up all these variables. And I want to see if you've ever seen something like this before. You have the Dobbs decision. You have an ongoing pandemic. You have a land war in Europe. One party dedicated to, you know, the end of American democracy as we know it. You have inflation, a hurricane making landfall. You know, I feel like a lot of times in an election year, you might have one of these things. We now have like nine going on, plus polling sucks. Maybe it gives you a good sense of where people are on an issue, but in a head-to-head, -head, who the hell knows? So is it as topsy-turvy to you as it feels like to me and Trigby in this conversation? Is there anything you can recall like this? No, I can't recall anything quite like it. I also don't think it's over in that we've got 40-something days left, 40 days left. And on any one of those variables that you talked about, I mean, look, let's look at one. Putin collapses. I mean, he just collapses in the next 30 days, as an example. Would you rule that out? No. Would I rule it in? No. I'm just saying, but that kind of, you know, one more man, that's going to change everything kind of moment happens, right? And I think it can happen on several different of those areas. Where I come down on all this is really simple. Everybody who talks about this stuff has repeated for two years since the day Joe Biden took the oath of office that wait till those midterms, because when a president's been there and his numbers are low going into the midterms, the party in charge gets wiped out. Okay. That's the way that does always happen. We know that. But where is numbers? His numbers, they have been coming up, but they suck. Let's just be straight about it. Ergo, as I look around, yes, Herschel Walker's close, but Warnock is right there and ahead. Fetterman, ahead. Mastriano and Shapiro, competitive and Shapiro's ahead. Ohio, not a blue or even purple state by most people's standards. Ryan, he's right in it. Arizona. You go through these places and it's not happening. The thing that's supposed to happen right now, these guys should all be five, 10 points down. When I look at it, there's all these things that I've never seen happen before. We haven't had a normal election in six years, at least. And everybody's saying, well, in a normal midterm, Democrats would get creamed. Well, I just don't think this is going to be normal for a lot of the reasons you cited. And that abnormal kind of decoupling from the president's approval ratings to seeing, you know, these candidates running ahead of him, including real life votes that we saw. New York 19, for instance, where Ryan ran ahead. Democrats have run ahead in five different special congressional elections ahead of Democratic performance. 
these things are all happening that make me think, no, it's not a normal election. That's why I believe the House is going to be far more competitive than people think. That doesn't mean I think we're going to take it or hold it. I think we can. I think that's possible if we all keep doing the work. But I'm still pretty optimistic about the chances of beating the authoritarian movement in this election, gaining a seat or two in the Senate. And I think it's possible to hold the House, likelier to be that Democrats miss it by less than 10 seats and maybe hold it by more than a handful. But it's in that range. It's not the things that everybody's been talking about. And I think some of those big factors that we talked about that you listed, any one of them could break in a way that changes all of that. I mean, if we get a big inflation number again, instead of slowly receding, you know, things like that are going to matter here in the last 40 days. I think Ukraine could be a big surprise in these last 40 days. And, you know, to your point, like who turns out it's a midterm election. It's turnout, 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 turnout. And it's interesting to see, you know, 75% of Republicans in a recent survey, Joe said, they believe that Donald Trump was rightfully elected in 2020. That's really bad news. The better news is 25% of Republicans think Joe Biden is the, you know, the rightfully elected president. And we don't need all of them. We just need enough. I'm hoping in what we call our existential states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Nevada, Arizona, in those governor's races and secretaries of state races, that enough Republicans, and we are seeing groups of you know, high-level Republicans coming out on behalf of Democratic candidates. I think that's an enormously powerful thing, especially given that Republicans tend to be more hierarchical than Democrats do, which is, oh, okay, somebody else is doing it. And I think you've talked about this in the memo that we reference a fair bit, which is in those states that I mentioned, Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, Tony Evers in Wisconsin, Steve Sisolak in Nevada, Katie Hobbs in Arizona. None of them, candidly, are fire-breathing progressives. These are candidates that an otherwise normal, well-adjusted Republican, however few there might be left, Joe, in the polling place, can say, okay, I'm okay with that person. Yeah, and that's what happened in 2018 as well. We got the same kind of class, I mean, in terms of who's running and standing election. And I think that plus the craziness the Republicans have nominated in these MAGA candidate cult candidates, I think means an even bigger shift. You know, if it was a three or four point ban in line, it's now could be seven, eight points in some places. And so it's a turnout election. We have to do the work and get our people out. You know, Al Franken was on that trippy show that just got dropped. And he was basically saying, you know, forget everything. Just start knocking on doors. Get out there. It's crazily important election. And do not leave any stone unturned. That's going to be the key in a midterm is can we get our votes out? Well, amen to that. And from your lips to God's ears and in that regard, guys, join 60,000 of your fellow Americans. Join the union.us. Make sure that we and our allies on the ground in these states that we've talked about have the ability to make sure that they can do the work that they've done just like Joe laid out. All right, Joe, before we let you go, where can folks find you online? At Joe Trippy on Twitter. And I hope you'll give that Trippy Show podcast a listen wherever you found the Lincoln Project pod. Amen. Yeah, definitely listen to it. The Al Franken interview is a great one. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen, on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. And remember, you can always reach us here at the podcast, podcast at lincolnproject.us. 
Send your questions, send your suggestions, send your complaints. I take them all. Always happy to see you guys so engaged. Until then, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. Also, be sure to check out our growing LPTV lineup including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. And Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Monday at noon Eastern. Plus, we'd love you to check out our newest show, The Game We're In, with Maya May and Trigby Olson, which airs Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project... I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.